chapter 5. If you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand. Got a, Actually, there's no one to hand out Bibles tonight. How about that? No, no Bible hander-outers. The ushers are playing hooky tonight. Uh, sorry, if you need a Bible, you're out of luck. Uh, you'll have to follow along on the screen. And we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be picking up in verse 15. In this section of Ephesians, we're talking about the walk of the believer or the lifestyle, if you would, of somebody who is called by the name of Jesus Christ. And by that, what, what we mean is the outward demonstration of the inward conversion that has taken place within our lives. If you're just joining us in the study of Ephesians, it will help you to know that our behavior as Christians, the things that we do that mark our lives and cause the world to identify us through the things that we do, our behavior is not a cause, but rather it's an effect. And by that, what I mean is that our behavior is not the thing that pleases God. We don't behave a certain way or abstain from certain things or do other things because that's our attempt to try to show God how serious we are or, or, or in some way to please Him. That's not why we behave as Christians. But rather, it's through faith in the redemptive work of Christ, what He accomplished on the cross, that causes our sins to be forgiven and therefore, it places us into a state where we are accepted by God. And it's that statement of God's acceptance and the fact of the blood of Christ that calls us righteous, that is what then causes us to behave a certain way. So our behavior is not a cause, rather it's an effect. It's, what, it's, the, it's the response or the reflection, because our lives are a reflection of His grace and goodness, and that's why we walk as Christians. Now last week we were exhorted by the Apostle Paul to walk in light, or to walk as children of light. This week, as we pick up in verse 15, the Apostle Paul is telling us that we are to walk in light. Wisdom. So if I could draw your attention to verse 15, listen to what the Apostle says to us. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You'll notice the word circumspectly there in verse 15. The word means exactly, accurately, carefully. In diligent awareness of what's going on around you. You see the word circum in there, which is where we, you know, get the idea of a circle. And it just, it's, it, the concept is that you know where you are, you know where, what's going on around you. And what it means to walk circumspectly is very simply to step carefully. One of the most frequent family outings that we partake in in my household is to pack up the minivan on a gorgeous day in March or whenever it might be the weather would afford and to take the kids and go find a place to go hiking. We love doing that mostly because it's free. <laughs> Second of all because it's you know beautiful it's nice to, to walk around in nature and to, to, to hear the leaves blowing through the trees and just to experience that and to kind of touched nature a little bit, and, and we, we all love that in our family, so we do that as often as we can. But inevitably, wherever we go, there's always somewhere, at some point, a stream or a river or a brook that must be crossed. And for me and my wife, that's usually not a problem. It's very simple for us to identify the proper stepping stones in order to make it safely to the other side. For the children, not so much. For them, sometimes, what is a step for us is a leap for them. For us, what seems to be, or what we would identify as a sure step, for them, they might see something that maybe is not quite so sure. 
And so, you know, to watch them cross is sometimes a little bit comical as you see a soaking sneaker, you know, or, or a, a knee-deep leg, you know, that sinks into the mud as they slip off the rock. And, and, and you know, we get a laugh. But here's where it gets a little bit more serious, you know. Perhaps we'll be walking Bull's Bridge and the Housatonic River where the water rushes a little bit faster, a little bit more intensely, you know. Or, as used to be the case more frequently when the kids were a little bit smaller, is that we would walk in, each one on our own legs, and we would walk out, and I would have at least two children on my back because they were too tired, you know. And so when you come to the stream or the river when you're under those circumstances, it's a much different experience. Because now the steps matter a whole lot more. If my foot slips off of the rock that I am am hoping is going to be a, a stable surface, when I'm carrying someone on my back, well, now it's not just going to be a, you know, a, a soaking sneaker or a, a, a knee-deep, you know, soaking, but someone's going to get hurt, and depending upon the speed or the intensity of the waters that you're crossing, it could be a much more serious situation. And so when you're doing that, you've got to be very circumspect with the way that you are approaching. You have to know what's going on around you, and you have to be very sure that where you're putting your feet down is going to be a safe landing. Because there's more at stake. The stakes are high. And that's the concept, you know, that the Apostle Paul is giving to us here, is that in this Christian life, as the people of the Lord walking in this world, we must be very careful to identify the stepping stones. What are the safe stepping stones for the Christians? And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, be careful where you put your feet, because where you step in this Christian life makes a difference. And so in verses 15 through 21, the Apostle Paul gives to us the stepping stones of wise walking. And the first one is given to us right there in verse 15. The first stepping stone of wise walking is the stepping stone of wisdom. Look at it again. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, the biblical definition of a fool is the person who says within themselves that there is no God. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. And no matter what the world defines a fool as, God looks at a person that says that there is no God, and his assessment of that person's life is that they are a fool. That means you could have someone that has a college degree. They might have a a, a Ph.D., They could be an astrophysicist or a nuclear scientist, and yet God could look at their life and God would say that person is a fool because they, in their heart, have declared that there is no God. On the same token, God could look at someone that has no credentials at all, that barely even has a GED, that could barely even get out of the the, the elementaries of the simplest education, and he could look at that person and he could say, that person is wise. Because the way God looks at things is completely different than the way we look at things. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us in the light of this, this definition of who is foolish and who is wise, what he's saying is, he's listen, don't make decisions in your lives with the mentality, or even to listen to the temptation to have the mentality, that there is no God. That what I'm about to do, where I'm about to put my foot down, the decision that I'm about to make isn't really going to matter, because, well, God's not really that involved in my life, and so it's really not going to make too much of a difference in the end. He doesn't really know what's going on in my life right now, or what's going on in my heart, or to understand the way that I feel. He doesn't really see me that closely. He's somewhere way out there, and I'm here on the earth, and he's not really all that concerned. And and quite frankly, based upon the way things are going, it seems like God doesn't really care that much about me. 
Because if he cared about me, then things would probably be going a little bit better. And so therefore, I'm just going to make this decision or get involved in this circumstance or give myself to this thing without regard to the existence or the care or the all-seeing eye of God. I'm going to live as though there is no God. And to do that is to live as a fool. He says, see that you walk not as a fool. It's interesting to me how the other night we were uh, flipping through, you know, in Discovery Channel, there was this thing about the end of the world. You know, you're looking through and cruising down the names of the shows on the, the guide, and it said, how the world will end. And you know, ooh, the Discovery Channel, that's where you go for answers, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, obviously, oh, what does Discovery Channel have to say about the end of the world? And here's Samuel L. Jackson, and he's the one you go to, too. <laughs> You know, and, and Samuel L. Jackson has a book, and it's, you know, supposed to be some sacred Mayan book, you know, or some. It probably was, an, um, you know, a, a Webster's Dictionary. You know, I don't know what it was. He never really read out of it. He just carried it, you know. And, and it was incredibly amusing for even me and the children to watch all of these doomsday scenarios. Completely out there. Nothing that is based on any substantiated fact. Nothing, of course, of God's word. Just pure garbage, you know. But it's going to, you know, the world's going to end and it's going to happen this year because the Mayans, they really knew what they were talking about, you know, and all the rest. So we watched that show and it was funny to look at it with the kids and, and you know, whatever. But the show that followed that right after How the World Will End was doomsday bunkers you know and, and it was the show about people that pay for these you know bulletproof bomb proof weather proof seismic proof you know boxes and, and how these people they're called hoarders you know and they basically are preppers i forgot what they call them but they they basically get as much as they can they store water they store fuel they have generators they have weapons they have tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition you know to protect themselves and all all this stuff and i'm watching this and i'm saying these people who think they're so wise they're pure fools, you know. I remember I saw this, uh, this end times movie. It was a Christian-based thing. It was called Tribulation with Gary Busey. You know, he made some real whoppers a few years ago. And, and uh, I remember this one scene that really, really did. It was so powerful because here's this guy. He, he gets left behind in the rapture. And his wife, you know, witnessed to him, but he said, forget it. And she gets raptured with the kids and he's left behind. And then he gets saved. He, re he realizes that he needs to get right. So he gets saved. But then he's going to be like the tribulation, you know, uh, whatever, you know, force, you know. And, and so he goes and he gets all of these weapons, all these guns, all this ammunition. And it's like the scene out of like this army movie. He's like putting camouflage on and putting the, the knife and zipping up his vest and guns here and weapons over here and the whole thing. And you're like, yeah, you know. And then he takes the Bible, because it's illegal to have a Bible, and he shoves it on top of the microwave, like in between the thing. He kind of hides it there, and then he, he leaves the house. And about two minutes after he leaves, the Antichrist with his goons, they come into the house, and they start tearing through and seeing all the empty gun cases and, you know, the, all this stuff. And, and you, you start to get, like, this sense like he's scared, you know. And, and then he goes, and, and he reaches up on top of the microwave, and he grabs the Bible. And he pulls the Bible out and he looks at it. And then he looks at his guys and he smiles. And he goes, he's completely unarmed. And, that, and you're like, yeah, okay. You see, listen, don't walk as fools, walk as wise. Now the contrast to foolishness, as he says, he says, do not walk as fools, but as wise. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? What is the stepping stone of wisdom? Well, if foolishness is defined as living like there is no God, moving and acting like there is no God, storing up weapons and gold and guns as though there is no God, then if that's foolishness, then what is wisdom? Wisdom is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, 
acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths or make your paths straight. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. It means to let the Lord be the one that directs your path. That you're not taking your life into your own hands. You're not making decisions and taking steps as though you're the one that has to make things happen within your life. But you're acknowledging Him. He is the Lord. He's the one that's going to take care of us. He's the one that's got it figured out. He's the one that knows how many hairs are on my head. He's the one that stores up all of my tears in a bottle. He's the one that's already gone into my tomorrow and has seen everything that's coming down the pike. He's the one that knows where I'll be in a year, where I was a year ago, and where I'll be in a 100,000 years. He is the one that holds my life in the very palm of his hand, and he can be trusted with it. And to live my life with that knowledge in mind that not one breath passes through my lungs without his full awareness of it and his care for it. To walk in wisdom is to lean upon the Lord with everything I have in all of my life, in every area, and to leave nothing to my own understanding. That's walking in wisdom. The world looks at that and says, that's foolish. But God looks at that and he says, that's wise. Walk in wisdom. The second stepping stone of wise walking is the stepping stone of opportunity. In verse 16. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word redeem there, the word in the Greek, what it means is to buy back out of the marketplace. And so to redeem the time means to buy back time. A number of years ago, through the Brookstone catalog, you could send away for, you'd fill out uh, you know, a questionnaire, and it would ask you all of these questions about your age and your health and a, a lot of stats about your, yourself, personal information, and you could send it away, and they would send you back a clock that counted backwards. They would take the information that you sent, and based upon averages and lifestyle and you know, where you lived and all the rest demographically, they would make a, a, a rough estimate determination of how much time you had left to live. And they would send you this clock, and you could put it on your desk or by your bed or wherever you wanted, and it would just tick backwards. It would have you know, a, a number of hours and minutes and seconds, and you could just watch. And I thought, you know, that, that would be a great thing to have. Because when you constantly see that, oh, wow, that second is gone, and I can never get it back again, it, it hopefully would change the way that we make decisions, the way that we use our time when we see how much time we have left. If you're 35 years old in here, at middle age, biblically, you know, you have 500 days left to use as you please. If you take out the time that you'll spend working and sleeping and doing chores and, uh, you know, driving in your car and, you know, wasting on the phone on hold with someone in India and, you know, all the, all the stuff that, you know, and, and time stealers, you know, the things that kind of take our time, things that we all have, you know, or whatever. And, and you just, just boil all of that down to just the time that you have to do what you want. If you're 35 years old, you have 500 days left. How are you using it? What are you doing with that time? Paul is telling us, seize the opportunity to get the most spiritually out of the time that you have left. See, once we're in heaven, once Jesus comes back, whether we die or whether we're raptured, once we're in heaven, there's certain things that we will never be able to do again. We'll never again be able to tell someone about the Lord, to share the love of Christ with someone that doesn't know Him. Once we're in heaven, we're not going to be able to learn new scriptures and apply them to our lives. We won't have time for that anymore. It won't be done. That part of life will be over with. Once we're in heaven, we can no longer store up Treasures in heaven and build up our eternal bank account. That's something that's reserved for the time that we have here and now on earth. And so Paul is saying, see your lives for what it is. You don't live forever on earth. And understand that the days are evil 
and that the stakes are high. So redeem the time that you have left and get the very most out of it that you can for eternal purposes. Don't waste time. Don't get into another TV series. Don't get hooked on another thing that's just going to waste away precious time that could be used to be given to spiritual things, eternal things, things that will last. How much time do you have left? If you live till you're 70, or if you live till you're 50, or if you live till you're 40, redeem the time that we have. That's what Paul is telling us. The third is the stepping stone of purpose. In verse 17, he says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. The one question I think that pastors, if you were to poll them, receive the most from people that seek to understand the Lord or come to them for counsel, concern what is the will of God for my life? What does God want for my life? And I think that's probably the number one question that most Christians have most frequently. What is the will of God for my life? And usually when people ask me that question, they're very frustrated with the answer because they're hoping that I'm going to have it, that I'm going to have some fortune cookie phrase that's going to, you know, just settle everything in their mind and in their lives and, that, and or I'm just going to tell them what to do and then, and then they can, you know, not do it because that's the way people are, you know. But, but usually people walk away from that conversation frustrated because they didn't get from it what they hoped, you know, an answer. And usually I'm frustrated too because, you know, I have a hard enough time trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. And now I have to figure out what it is for, for yours, you know. I like what Tony Clark shared when he was here. That was a, a gem, wasn't it? And I know many of you have, have held on to that. I've heard that. You know, he said, if you want to know the will of God for your life, you run it through the test of three things. Number one, the test of desire. The Bible says that God gives those that delight in Him, the desires of their heart. So is it a desire, the thing that you're seeking God about? The second thing was a peace. The Apostle Paul said to the Colossians, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, or referee. The peace of God within you when a circumstance comes or when a decision is to be made, the peace of God inside of you, the Spirit of God, will either say, that's a good move, or he'll say, eh, not such a good move. There'll be a peace or there'll be a lack of peace. And the peace of God is one way that God directs his people. And then the third thing that he said is an open door. Is that if, is there an open door to do the thing or, or, you know, to move in the direction that you feel that God might be leading you? And he said, if you have a desire, a peace, and an open door, he said, then you're, you're pretty good. You're doing pretty well as far as determining the will of God for your life. I would add one more thing to that. Not to say that he neglected to, to say it, but that wasn't the topic of his sermon. But I would add one more thing to that, probably the most important ingredient. And that is, what does the Bible say? The Word of God. And here's why I say that. is because I talk to people all the time, and they'll come to me and they'll say things like, you know, I really feel like the will of God for me right now is for me to divorce my husband or to divorce my wife. And I'll say, oh, really? That's the will of God. I said, you pray about that? And they'll say, yeah. And they'll say, and you know what? I have a desire. I really have a desire to be out of this marriage. And you know what? I have a peace. And I think that peace will be so much more magnified after I get out of this situation. And you know what? I have an open door. Because just yesterday, I passed by a billboard for 300 bucks. I can go and I can sign, fill out the papers and this thing could be done, you know. And, and I could be out of this. And it just seems that that's the will of God for my life. I have a peace. I have a desire. I have an open door. Well, listen. What you don't have is the blessing of God because he's already said within his word that he hates divorce. Jonah had a desire. God said, go to Nineveh. And I don't want to go to Nineveh. That's not my desire. I don't want to go to Nineveh. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah had a desire to go to Tarshish. 
Jonah also had an open door because, hey, he walks out of his house and he hears, hey, there's a ship, it's leaving. Ship in the port of Joppa, it's leaving for Tarshish. Oh, Lord, you're so good. An open door. I want to go to Tarshish. Now I have an opportunity to go to Tarshish. And it just so happens, it's happening right now. I have a, I have a desire. I have an open door. And he also had a peace. Because we read that when Jonah went down into that ship, he went into the bottom of the ship and he fell asleep. He was sawing logs. Even once the storm came, they had to come down there and shake him awake and say, what in the world is going on here? He had a desire. He had a peace. He had an open door. The problem is, the word of the Lord was, go to Nineveh, Jonah. And because Jonah disobeyed the word of the Lord, he found himself in a storm that was a detriment to himself and to all of the other people that were with him. Listen, whatever your peace, whatever your desire, whatever the door that might be opened, if you're doing something or moving in a direction that is in a violation of what God has already revealed within his word, you are heading for a storm. And the destruction that will come from that storm in your life and in the lives of all those that are in that ship with you will be much worse than the thing that you're trying to get away from. So not just a peace, not just a desire, not just an open door, but what does the word of God tell us? So what we do when we want to know the will of God is Paul is telling us understanding what the word of the Lord is is that if we take the general principles or statutes of the Word of God and then lay them over the circumstances and situations within our lives and then couple that with prayer, with counsel from brothers and sisters in the Lord, people that we trust that are mature in the faith, and then the providence of God, the open door and the peace and the desire and all of the rest. If we do those things, we lay the principle of Scripture over the circumstance in our life, then we're in the right direction. We're moving the right direction as far as discovering what the will of the Lord is for our life. But it's impossible to do that without having a relationship with Him. It's impossible to discover the will of the Lord if you're not in fellowship with the Lord. You have to walk with Him. And Paul is saying that part of these steps, the stepping stone of purpose, is the discovery and then the embracing of the will of God for our lives. Before we move on, I want to say that for myself, I find that God leads me a lot louder than he speaks to me. As far as discovering the will of God and the moves and the direction that I'm to take, he leads me a lot louder than he speaks. He speaks But his word within my mind and my heart sometimes can be so clouded by my desires and clouded by circumstances and clouded by things that I I, I can't perceive. But his leading to me is so precious, I trust him. And I trust that as my life is yielded to to the Lord and I just allow him to take and and do with it as he pleases, that he's not going to allow me to blindly go in a direction that's going to be a detriment to me especially if I want to be in his perfect will and I'm willing to be led by him. And oftentimes the, the, the funny thing about being led by the Lord is that you never, you never recognize it or you rarely recognize it going forward. But looking backward, it's always clear as crystal. Looking forward, you say, oh, how is this going to work out? How am I going to get through this? Lord, how are you going to navigate me through these circumstances? But when I look back over the past 10 years of my life and I see, wow, When I was in that place, when I thought it was impossible, that was so necessary for for that to happen and then for that to lead to this and for that to go here, you know. And his leading is just so faithful. Just keep going forward. I often find myself telling people when when they're in precarious situations, I say, listen, you're on this narrow path and it's narrow. And sometimes it's so narrow that the branches are just blocking the path. You you can see that your feet are there, but the, the vegetation is just so thick, you feel like you don't know where you're going. Here's what you do. You push the branches out of your way and keep going. It'll all come together. Don't worry. Just stay submitted to the Lord. Keep yourself in a desire 
to, to do and to know His will. So, the stepping stone of purpose. He moves on and He tells us of the stepping stone of spiritual power in verse 18. He says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The language there, it's in the, the, the continual tense. So the language, it, it should read there, it says, be being filled. Not just be filled once and then move on with your life, but it's a continual filling. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit is what Paul is telling us there. But he begins this exhortation with a warning. He tells us to avoid the mossy stone of intoxication. You know how sometimes if you've ever been in that situation where you're crossing the stream and seeking to identify the safe stones to put your feet on to make you know, successful passage across to the other side, and sometimes you see that stone that looks so solid. It looks like the obvious right place to put your foot down. There's only one thing. It's covered with moss. And if you've ever put your foot on a mossy stone, then you understand that most times a mossy stone, it's very slick. And it is not a very gripping surface, a good place to put your foot down. And Paul is telling us here in this exhortation where he's giving to us the stepping stones of a wise walk, he says, avoid the mossy, slippery stone of intoxication. Because it promises safety. It promises ease. It promises a little bit of relief from the stress of walking through a dangerous situation or a dangerous time. But the problem with it is that it's a very slippery step. And here's the even bigger problem with the slippery stone of intoxication. Is that once you step onto that stone, it's very difficult to step off of it again. And there's no stone to step on after that. So your only choice is to go backwards, but it's a very hard stone to step off of. Oftentimes I'll talk to people, Christians, you know, that are engaging and, you know, drinking of alcohol and whatnot. And, you know, if the conversation comes around, usually I hear things like, well, Jesus drank. The use of wine was common in Old Testament times or even New Testament times. Didn't Paul write to Timothy and say, Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your oft infirmities. Yes, it's true that the use of wine was very common in New Testament times. See, they didn't have a tap. They didn't have water purification plants. They didn't have... You know, those pure or Brita water filters where you could purify. Oftentimes, the only way that you could get water to be clean was to process it through the, through the act of fermentation. But true to the biblical tradition, the wine was not what we would call wine today. What we call wine today, the Bible calls strong drink. It was a much different thing. Yes, although it was common in New Testament times for people to use a little wine... Drunkenness, intoxication, was never acceptable. Intoxication, even to the point of what we would call, oh, just catching a buzz. Having your judgment or your, you know, your, your circumspectness, if you would, having that altered is not allowed biblically. Now, I'm not laying the law on you. I'm not saying, listen, if you're a Christian, then you're not to drink. That's not what I'm saying, but I will ask you. That before you enjoy the liberty or take the liberty of drinking, even casually, even just socially, even just a little, can I ask you to ask yourself four questions? First of all, what is your reason for doing it? Honestly. If you're really honest with yourself, what's the reason why you're drinking? Maybe, maybe in there somewhere just a little bit, I want to relax. I want to escape. You're flirting with the slippery stone. The second question to ask yourself is, is it necessary? Is this necessary right now? Do I need to do this? Is this profitable to me? Number three, if I do this, even though I'm not going to be drunk or buzzed or anything even such the like, nothing inappropriate at all, what message is it going to send to those that are with me? Or what message is it not going to send to those that are with me? 
And finally, is my partaking of this liberty going to cause another Christian to stumble? Because let me tell you, there are some people in the faith that if they see you take a sip of wine, it's going to cause them to fall off the wagon. Ask yourself those questions and just ask, is it necessary? Paul tells us, he says, avoid the slippery stone of intoxication. But then he says, but rather, he says, be being filled with the Spirit. Now, why does Paul use wine and drunkenness as a contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit? Some have suggested that because when you drink wine, you lose control. When you're intoxicated, you lose control. And Paul is saying, be so filled with the Spirit that you begin to lose control. That you begin to just feel the Holy Ghost start to come upon you. And you begin to just laugh. And then you just begin to let let the animal sounds begin. Just start barking like a dog. And just let it happen. Let it grow. Let it continue. Just start cackling like a chicken, you know. and, and, And let the holy laugh come to you. It's nothing new. Yes, we see it. Yes, it's a mockery. Yes, it's an embarrassment. It's nothing new. It was around even way back in early New Testament times. I remember Watchman Nee, that Chinese Christian, he, you know, dead a long time. That that whole thing swept through China in his day. In his assessment of it, he says, I perceive, he said, I saw the holy laugh and I perceive that it is nothing but a move of the flesh. So that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying comparing it because the Holy Spirit causes us to lose control. But here's why he is. Because when a person drinks alcohol, they are officially considered or labeled to be under the influence. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us, don't be under the influence of some intoxicating substance, but rather let your life be under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. And when your life is under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, you don't lose control. He's not the author of confusion, Corinthians tells us. He's the author of peace. In Corinthians, again, he says that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And what that simply means is that God is never going to make you lose control of your will. Under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, your eyes are never going to roll back in your head and you're just going to start doing things that you have no control over. That's unbiblical. That doesn't happen. God, God is the author of peace, not of confusion. But he's telling us that we're to be under the influence of God's Spirit. That's the dictate. That's what he's saying. Now, the problem that most Christians have with this verse is not Paul's telling us that we're not to be drunk with wine. And, or I should say, Paul's command that we are to be filled with the Spirit. We don't have a problem with either of those two things. Here's the problem that most Christians have. How? Yes, Paul, I want to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. How is that done? How is a Christian continually filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Well, he gives to us the answer in the ensuing verses. He tells us in verse 19 how that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The first key, if you would, to being continually being filled with God's Holy Spirit is to immerse yourselves continually in spiritual substance. Immerse yourselves continually in spiritual substance. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what time of day, whether you're driving in your car or sitting at your desk or at your workstation or whether you're mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or sitting with your family, speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Continually immerse yourself. The psalms are, we understand that, that's the 150 songs that are there recorded in the Bible, in the book of songs. He says, Just commit those things into your mind and continually let them be upon your lips, speaking to yourselves the Word of God. Hymns, traditionally and 
Contemporarily, hymns are songs that are taken right out of the scripture. Don't you just love the hymns? I mean, maybe you don't love the the old-fashioned melody or whatever, but you ever listen to the words? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It is well with my soul. How great thou art. You know, the, the, the words of these psalms or these hymns are so powerful. They're so rich. The concepts and the truth and the depth. I mean, it's a Bible study in and of itself. And to have those things continually flowing from your lips, even just talking to yourselves, those words is spiritually enriching. And this is the part that gets me. He goes on to say spiritual songs. Do you know what spiritual songs are? My wife and I, we call those 7-Eleven songs. Seven words, 11 times, you know. And you all understand that. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Love, you know. And we, you know, he's saying, listen, even, even 7-Elevens, let them be upon your lips. Because you'll be edified. It's going to fill you. It's going to saturate you. It causes the enemy to flee from before you. It causes temptations to dissolve. It causes darkness to melt into light when we allow the word of God and the songs of God to be continually flowing from our lips. And so he says, you want to be filled with the Spirit, immerse yourselves in spiritual substance. He goes on in verse 20, and he tells us the second key to being continually filled with the Spirit, and he tells us that we're to maintain an attitude of thanksgiving. In verse 20, he says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is a constant awareness of what you have and what you enjoy with gratitude in your heart. Constant awareness of what you've been given, what you have and what you enjoy with gratitude in your heart. Conversely, unthankfulness is a constant awareness of what you don't have with a desire to have it, while at the same time you're taking for granted the things that you have. That's unthankfulness. Constantly thinking about what you don't have with a desire to have it, with an ignoring of those things that you constantly have the potential to enjoy. Thanksgiving constantly surges you upward. Unthankfulness, I believe, is the number one cause for depression, discouragement, despondency, and distress. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, For I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in therewith to be content. And the key to contentment is to be constantly giving thanks for the things that you have. Isn't it amazing how much God has given to us? You know, I talk to a lot of young people and they they say things to me like, oh, I just so want to be married. I so want to be married. I just can't wait to be married. I talk to so many married people that say, oh, I wish I was single. Oh, I wish I was single. Oh, that I could be single again. And, And here's what happens is that we build these hurdles in our lives. We give ourselves these challenges or we allow these desires to overpower us wherein we refuse to be happy or we... Uh, We disable our ability to be thankful until we have just that one thing. But then as soon as we have that one thing, we're on to the next one. Well, now I'm married. Now we need a job. You know, how are we going to pay for all this? You know, And, and now it's like, oh, I just need a better job. I just need a better job. And you can never be thankful for what you have. You know, I think about how probably, I don't know what the the numbers are, but it's probably nine tenths of all of the people in the world just wish that they could be an American citizen. Nine-tenths of the people in the world just wish, just wish, wish that they could be one of those fortunate people that were born in the United States of America. We have that, and we never give it a single thought. And here's the secret. Neither would they. Because why? Because we don't, It isn't in our nature to reflect upon what we have with gratitude and thanksgiving. It's simply to look on to the next thing that we can conquer. But we can never enjoy what we have. Paul is saying this is a real key to being continually uplifted and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And that is to live your life in a constant awareness of what you have. 
and be thankful for it. Don't be complaining about what you don't have. Don't constantly be desiring, saying, hey, I know that even right now there's some people that are sitting here and they're thinking, you know what, I'm going to do what you're saying as soon as I clear this hurdle. <laughs> Listen, be thankful. Be thankful. You'll be filled with God's Holy Spirit. You'll have joy in your heart in the Lord. Thanksgiving is a source of spiritual power. And then finally in verse 21, he gives us the, 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 the key of fellowship as far as being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 21, he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The word submitting there in the Greek, the Greek word is hupotasso. It's kind of a fun word to say. Hupo means under, and tasso means influence. It means under the influence. It means un to be under one another's influence or to be continually influencing one another. And, and obviously, the idea is upward. Influencing one another, encouraging each other in the things of God. And it means a consistent upward surge that comes from fellowshipping with one another. Paul says that's a real key as far as being continually filled with the Holy Spirit is to be in fellowship with other Christians, to be constantly encouraging and drawing strength from someone else's gifts and someone else's prayer life and someone else's victories and praying for someone else in their battles and helping one another in the things of God. Not being so inward and self-consumed. And so Paul gives to us tonight the, the stepping stones of wise walking, the stepping stone of wisdom, the stepping stone of opportunity, redeeming the time, the stepping stone of purpose, understanding the will of the Lord, and the stepping stone of spiritual power, being continually filled with God's Holy Spirit, letting Him have complete influence and complete control of our lives. The key to a successful walk with the Lord is twofold. To have a wise walk or a successful walk with the Lord requires two things. First of all, it requires that we know what is going on around us. Come back to that analogy of crossing the stream and finding the proper stepping stones. A successful passage from one side to the other depends, first of all, upon knowing what's going on around you, being aware of what's going on around you. Christian, let me ask you, in the world we live in today, in the circumstances that we call society and culture in 2012, do you really know what's going on around you in the world? Are you really aware of the spiritual temperature of our society and of our globe, of our culture globally, what's going on around you? Because a key to our success in this thing called Christianity depends upon our awareness of what's going on around us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said this, and he describes to a T the days that we're living in. Paul tells us what's going on around us, and here's what he says. He says, this know also, that in the last days, perilous, that means dangerous, perilous times shall come. And then he sums it up this way. He says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. The predominant attitude of men and women will be a self-loving attitude. That word lovers of themselves, it's one word in the Greek. It's the word, word philados. I don't know how to say it in Greek. I don't know how to say it in English. Philados. And phil is the prefix of phila, Philadelphia or phileo, where we get the word love. And autos is where we get autobiography or a self-biography. So philados means lover of self. And what it means is loving oneself, intent on one's own interest, selfish. And then he describes what that looks like in the following verses. And listen what it means when people are consumed with self-love. He says they're covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness. That means they'll be in church. That means they'll profess to be Christians. It means that they'll wear crosses around their necks. They'll have bumper stickers on the backs of their cars. And they'll say things like, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And this is the problem in verse 6. He says, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive. Silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lust. And you begin to see the problem with a society that's consumed with self-love is that when self is the ruling body, when self is what's on the throne of the world, then self will do whatever it takes to get what it wants, even to the deceiving and the defiling of somebody else, including the people of God. Now, as verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, and as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. And then in verse 13, just a few down from there, he says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The parallel passage to this was in Matthew chapter 24. The very words of Jesus himself when he was asked the question, what will be the sign of the end of, of your coming? And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, Jesus said these words. He said, and then, in those days, he said, shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And you know, this is true in the world in every generation at every time. But what Jesus is saying is that when you see this beginning to happen in the church, he said, then you'll know. You know, what's amazing is that I'm sure even when I read that, you can think of 10 people that call themselves Christians. And yet this is the autobiographical statement of their life. They're easily offended. They're willing to betray their brothers and sisters. And they're filled with hatred even for their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Verse 11, he says, For many and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. This is the atmosphere that we are living in. This is the day. This is the time that we're in. And in light of that, the peril that Paul was talking about when he said, In the last days, perilous times will come. It requires that you and I, Christian, that we walk circumspectly. That we're very aware of what's going on around us and we're very aware of where we're putting our feet down. Why? Because the stakes are high. Jesus goes on to say something very sobering that someone's going to have a problem with, but Jesus said it. He says in verse 13, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Listen, there's no need for a warning if there's no danger. And if the last days are perilous times, dangerous times, and Jesus is giving his people a warning to walk circumspectly, it's because there's a risk that if we put our feet down in the wrong place, we might not get up again. And so Paul is imploring us, the Spirit of God speaking tonight, saying, listen, Christian, be careful where you place your feet. It matters. Know what's going on around you. The second key to having a successful walk is being mindful of where you're going. Be mindful of where you're going. Listen, we're going to heaven. There'll be no more battle. There'll be no more grieving of God's Holy Spirit. There'll be no more temptation against sin. There'll be no more overwhelming times or overwhelming nights. There'll be no more circumstances that Seek to destroy us. But most of all, what there will be is there will be a man with holes in his hands, scars and wounds upon his body that he endured for you personally. John chapter 1, verse 17 says that the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses stands as the lawgiver, as an executioner. And in his hand he holds a clipboard 
with your name on it and every sin you've ever committed. And standing next to Moses with that clipboard is a cross that also has your name on it. And because you have committed those sins and your name with a list is upon that clipboard, the only way to have that erased is for you to suffer the eternal wrath of God for which that cross stands and then represents a doorway where you will then perish in the eternal flames of hell. The only way to avoid that is if you can find someone that has never sinned, ever, that has a perfectly clear clipboard that is willing to trade name tags with you. Go find that person. Search every continent, every corner, every tribe, under every tree, and you go find that person that's never sinned. And if you find them, I hope you're a real good salesman. Because you're going to have to try to convince them to give you their clean slate and take all of your filth. God so loved you, Christian. God so loved you, sinner. He didn't want you to perish in the flames of eternal hell. So he became a man and he lived that perfect life and then he came and found you. And he says, let me see that clipboard. He carefully looks over everything you did and even the things that you haven't done yet. And then he gives you a nod as he looks you in the eye and he says, listen, I'll tell you what. Let's trade name tags. I'll give you mine. You give me yours. And then Moses, the executioner, he stands and he calls your name. And as he calls your name, Jesus steps forward in your place. And Moses says, you must answer for these things. And he reads the list of things that are written there, that are laid to your account. And he says, for these things, you are condemned to die and condemned to eternal separation from God. Come close. And he, Jesus steps forward and Moses looks at the name on the clipboard and he looks at the name tag and he says, yes, you're the one. And he says, seize him, men. And they take him and they pluck out his beard. He takes the whips of the flagellum and then he's nailed to the cross and all of the wrath of God, all of the darkness of sin is thundered down upon him while you stand back and watch as you know that name tag that's on you isn't yours. And then finally, Jesus, the name Jesus is called and and you shyly step forward and the clipboard the clipboard is clean. And Moses says, wow, a clean clipboard. I've, I've never seen a clean clipboard ever. But he says, yeah, that's the name tag. And this is the name. And there's no sin. You. Come. Enjoy the kingdom that's been prepared from the foundation of the world. The gates of heaven are open to you. A price that you couldn't pay. A gift that you didn't deserve. And listen, where we're going, Christians, we're going to see that scarred the wounded man who took our place in punishment that's where we're going and listen it's worth it so no matter what the peril is of the day no matter how dark things are no matter how difficult the journey is as you step from stone to stone listen walk wisely church the stakes are high but the prize is worth it let's pray Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your grace. Truly the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we so thank you tonight, Lord, for this calling that you've given us, this privilege that we have, that you found us. And that you offered to us this gift of eternal life. And I just pray tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't yet know you personally, that has not yet made that switch, trading name tags with you, of receiving the gift of your salvation, I just pray, Lord, that that person, even right now in their mind, would think upward and say, Jesus, save my soul. I accept your gift.
And I pray for those of us that are here that know you, Lord. I pray that we would have such a clear vision in our mind of what you've done for us. That we wouldn't add sin to that list on purpose. Please, Lord, help us. I pray that you'd strengthen each one of us. Help us to walk this path. Help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And help us to do the things that you've spoken to us tonight, Lord, for truly your commandments are your enablements. So help us, Lord, to walk in this way, to redeem the time, to walk in your will, and to be filled with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.